It wasn't until I met my friend Danny B and I had asked him how long he had been there. And he looked at me with a straight face and he was like, oh yeah, I've been here for 31 years. It literally smacked me like a ton of bricks. I'm gonna have to serve all eight of these years. And all of these things were going through my brain as I'm become crippled in a space where I could not emote. I couldn't show all of the fear and anxiety that I felt in that singular moment. And instead of me saying that I'm here and on the way out, I now have to say, Marcus, this is your life now. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> this is Finding Founders. <laughs> At the top of the episode, you were listening to Marcus Block, who spent eight years in prison, two of which were in solitary confinement. As you just heard, Marcus had some serious stuff to overcome before becoming the esteemed entrepreneur he is today. Some were physical, like the steel jail bars he sat behind as a high schooler, and some were societal, like the institutionalized cycle of recidivism. But as we're about to see, he reclaims his freedom striving for achievement in the face of stigmatization. When he has 42 applications rejected, Marcus takes the one minimum wage job he is offered and transforms it into an $80,000 sales rep position. All of this leads up to an idea that would transform the lives of thousands. Today, with his app FlickShop, Marcus is rising up to defeat yet another monster of a challenge, recidivism. But before we step into the ring and watch Marcus battle it out with each of these adversaries, let's first get an idea of where all this relentless courage came from. I grew up in the church as a kid with, you know, eight other cousins that were close. All of us were close in age and aunts and uncles and mother and grandmother. We were a close knit family. What was your mom's role in your life? My mom, she wanted to ensure that my sister and I understood the value of furthering our education and where it could take us. She wanted to go further in her collegiate journey. So she was like, you know, all right, post-secondary education. All right, I'm going to college, I'm going back to college. And I want my children to see me going back to college. And she ensured that my sister and I saw that at every stage. What did education mean to her and like, what did you take from it? I mean, I think that, you know, it meant a lot to her, but I could care less. It didn't prove any value to me. I didn't know anybody that was a millionaire that had gotten any degrees. Like, that didn't matter to me. And all the people in my neighborhood who seemingly had wealth definitely didn't look like my mom, which is the person that got up every day to go to work and then go to school in the evenings and drive a Ford Escort. I saw people out in the neighborhood that drove Mercedes and BMWs, and that's who I aspire to be like. Why? Because they got girls, and I was 13, <laughs> and all I cared about was <laughs> girls. <laughs> At the time, all Marcus cared about was girls. 
But while he'd eventually grow out of that, the lessons he learned from his family would stick around. His support system planted an overarching message he couldn't forget. They reminded Marcus that they loved and believed in him. And they wanted to see him do great things and would use every source of knowledge they had to help him get there. In childhood development, an encouraging environment like this breeds creativity. An involved family fosters the confidence kids typically need to take risks and push themselves to achievement. What we say to our kids matters. The words we use directly impacts their potential. When we tell them they can be anything, they bloom. Marcus's family set the stage for him to be an out-of-the-box thinker. But as Marcus approached his teen years, thinking outside the box did not always mean thinking within the law. As I grew up and older, there I, be, I began to have some proximity to other people who I thought would have similar success. And those are the dudes, the guys who stood out on the block and stood in front of their Mercedes and they blasted the music real, real loud. And it was hidden behind weed smoke on the street corners. And then over time, there was another guy. He was the pastor's son at my church. And he was really, really successful. He was the guy that was a businessman and was an entrepreneur. And he actually used to tell me all the time, like, Marcus, you're very mischievous, but you are amazingly brilliant and you're a natural salesperson. To me, I'm like, all right, that was cool that he would say that. But the other guys seemed cooler because they was out in the street corners. So I aspired to want to hang out, to be like the guys on the street corners that looked like success in my neighborhood. People talk about not doing drugs and who were the dudes that do their drugs. They always painted a picture of like the people who would live in my neighborhood, which were like my friends or my friends' brothers or their uncles or their fathers. And I'm like, uh, I don't know if these guys are bad like you guys are making them see. You know what I mean? Because like when I go to the basketball court, they're the ones that's like lifting me up to be able to dunk. They're the ones who are always asking me, what did I get on my report card? And they did it with care. And they're like, oh, man, for real, you got an A in that class? That's what's up. They cheered me on. And they were cool. And all the girls, they cheered me on because they were cheering me on. And, and I was like, yo, this is dope. So why are you guys making these people seem like the bad people? These are my friends. These drug dealers were protective and generous people who were integral parts of the community. Between dealing drugs and becoming an entrepreneur, the more promising career path might seem obvious, especially to an adult. But to an elementary schooler, the obvious choice is typically what's cooler, what's familiar. And for young Marcus, that's what drug dealing was. It was an image of wealth and popularity that he could see every day in his neighborhood. Beyond the under-the-table sort of stuff, the job economy in a town like Forestville, Maryland, was comprised mostly of retail, transportation, and construction. And while Marcus admired the pastor's son, this white-collar position wouldn't have seemed as attainable or relevant to his immediate world in Forestville. As ironic as it sounds, drug dealing probably seemed like the safer bet. That is, until he actually got involved. It was interesting when I started to um, ask, like, yo, you know, what y'all doing today? And then next thing you know, somebody would pass me a blunt and then I would, I would hit the blunt. And then once I hit the blunt, now I'm a part of the community. Now I'm a part of the journey. I'm a part of the friends. I'm a part of the click, the circle. That feel like a moment for you? 
Nah, not because I wanted to join and be a part of something. You know what I mean? I didn't care about being a part of something. I wanted to be able to make the money. Like I wasn't a follower and wanted to be a part of a group of people that were just doing stupid stuff. In my mind, I'm like, y'all are all doing it wrong. I thought that there was a better way. I thought that there could have been a smarter way. That's when I got introduced to someone else that told me that I could steal parts off of cars and sell them. Marcus's friends had already been immersed in the drug trade, and in his eyes, they were thriving. They were getting girls and making money. Like, this real-life experience completely contradicted what government institutions at the time were saying about drugs. In retrospect, this is why researchers today believe that the 1980s and 90s anti-drug campaigns largely failed. Campaigns like D.A.R.E., the one Marcus mentioned, was notorious for exaggerating the effects of certain drugs, like claiming that marijuana had no medical benefits, caused insanity and lung disease. But Marcus wasn't seeing any of that. What he did see were the people he admired most doing something that worked. And he was just an entrepreneur looking for a way to make his own thing work. He jumped at any opportunity to have an operation that was all his own. But the one he found wound up being far riskier. The rationale that I'm hearing you describe why like selling drugs wasn't you is because like you didn't want to have to worry about, you know, looking over your shoulder basically, right? This was a lot easier and smarter than selling drugs. Because you were more visible selling drugs, whereas the car parts, you didn't have to be visible. You didn't have to be visible. You didn't have to stand outside and be, you know... Exposed. Yeah, you exposed, right? Like, you know what I mean? I had to watch out for not only the people who were out there with me, but the police. I had to watch out for my mom. This thing, this new career path um, that I thought that I, <laughs> I was going to enjoy was seemed to be a little bit smarter. I mean, I was a kid, right? Like, I was a kid, and this was something that was fun. You know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm not hurting anybody. Nothing's happening. Like, everything is okay. Getting caught was not even on your mind. Like, did you ever have a close encounter before 15? My cousin and I and a friend of mine, we broke into a car. When we bro broke into the car, we realized that it belonged to, like, it was like a, a police officer's regular car. And so when we saw the bulletproof vest and, the, like, the badge and, like, some handcuffs and a, and a, and a shotgun, we was like, oh! It's a police guy. Nah. And so we left. Like, I guess somebody had called the police or whatever, and they, they saw us. I'm like, yo, look, if he jumps out his car, if he says something to us, and he even thinks that he can catch us, look, you, I mean, I play basketball every single day. Ain't no, you know, fat cop going to catch me on in a foot race. And that ain't even possible, right? While we're walking, the police officer is like, coming driving behind us he has this spotlight on us and he's like excuse me excuse me and we're walking we were talking to each other and we're telling each other like look when i say three we're gonna break one two three boom we break all three of us start running i hear my cousin like yell like oh i'm like oh i hope my cousin didn't get caught i still keep running my other boy he keeps running like we find a yard that we both, you know what I mean, like are hiding behind in the, in the back, one of the backyards. And we're like looking around and hoping as when we see the car drive by real slow, the other police car drive by real slow, we're hoping that my cousin's not in the back of the car. As the police officer's driving by, we don't see him in the car, so we're like, all right, maybe he's good. We're walking around the neighborhood, you know, the police officer's gone, we're looking for my cousin. We don't find him. I'm like, yo, I guess I'm going to have to go home without my cousin. And I don't know how I'm explaining to my mother where my cousin is because we just snuck out last night. 
when I walk into the house, my cousin is sitting on the sofa along with the police officer and my mother, my cousin's mother, my aunt, my my older cousins and my sister. And I walk in the house and they all look at me. I'm like, oh man, you got caught? That whole time, I was more nervous about what me getting punished by my mom. She outweighed the police, the prosecutor, the judge, right? Like none of those people scared me. In my mind, the only two crimes in the world was murder and rape and then everything else. And that was like the way that, you know, I was in, 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 like I just saw and naturally it just became a part of my way of thinking until much later when I realized like, wait a minute, there has to be a better way. For Marcus, stealing cars and reselling parts seemed like a less risky way to get money than what he saw everyone else doing. At the time, D.C. was at the tail end of a crack epidemic. From the mayor's office to the police to the FBI, with all eyes on crack, it was easier for carjacking to slip through. Like Marcus said, he saw the two true crimes as murder and rape. And carjacking just didn't fall into that. Not even close. But at the end of the day, it's still a crime under the law. And one wrong step would bring everything crashing down. So let's go to when you're 15. You're going to steal a car. Do tell me about that story. Yeah, I mean, so my friend and I, one night, we go decided to go into a mall in Fairfax, Virginia. And um, there was a man sleeping in his car. Uh, we decided we're going to tap on his window um, with, the, with the firearm. He gets out of his car. We get into the driver's side and the passenger side of the car, speed off, leave him in the parking lot standing up. We found his his credit cards inside of his wallet that was also, you know, taken from him when we um when we when we got the car. When we get to the mall and the folks were using their credit card, one of the store agents are like, wait a minute, this looks a little fishy. Let's call the credit card company and make sure that this is supposed to this is a real thing. When we see the security guards come, like coming from out of the corner of our eye, we like, yo, I don't think of the day calling the credit card companies. We should probably go ahead and just boogie. We start to leave the mall, and then the security guys start yelling. It's like, hey, you, once they see us, same thing I'm thinking. Yeah, right. I play ball every day. You only got to catch me now. Let's play cat and mouse. We take off running. We get so far away from the mall that we realize that we're running from Pentagon City Mall across the 395 highway to eventually land inside of the parking lot at the actual Pentagon building when we hear police coming from everywhere and realize that we went from running from the police to running to the police. And so when we get to the actual gate of the Pentagon, a security guy stops like, where you guys running to? We like, oh man, we all out of breath, like trying to figure out like what if this is real or not of all these police officers that, that we see these sirens from off of us or not. When he points us to the direction where all the police are, we're like, yeah, it's time to probably try to get our story together now. The police officers, they come, they run, grab us, slam us on the ground. Um, in my head, I'm thinking like, please don't call my mother. Please don't call my mother. Please don't call my mother. They took me to the juvenile detention center where I saw my boy. And he told me that they, you know, that he did, they did the same thing to him in the, um, in the room. And we like, yo, you think this thing is real? And he like, I don't know. And I'm like, I think I'm going to have to call my mom. And he like, yeah, me too. And that's what's the beginning of the next 
several years of our lives. He didn't understand the magnitude because at this point, Marcus was still just a kid. Though it by no means justifies the crime, the teenage brain is highly impulsive. It wants to do stupid shit, test boundaries, rebel. The full maturation of the brain doesn't really occur until 25. At this point, Marcus is nowhere near that. So yeah, stealing cars is a pretty bad idea, but when you put things into perspective, is locking him away in prison during the formative years of his life really the best route? I guess it depends on who you ask, but the bottom line is, none of this had a chance to sink in for Marcus as he's being pushed into the back of the police car. The weight of his actions, something that had been so far away from his mind at the time, was now getting harder to ignore. He may not have fully understood the magnitude of his actions, but they were about to transform his life. It took two years for me to jump out of my own delirium. I literally lived in denial for the first two years. Even at sentencing, my judge sentenced me and gave me 23 years to life. I'm living in the cells thinking that every week I'm like, all right, my mom, my lawyers, like somebody's going to figure it out and they're going to talk to the judge and they'll go back and they'll say, all right, well, you made a mistake. You learned your lesson. Don't do this ever again. Go back to school. Go crush it. And once they transferred me from the jail to the prison that was three hours away, it became slightly more real. But then, then it was like, oh, snap, I'm far from home. Now we got to make sure that we go even harder and really step it up with like writing letters to the judge and writing letters to, to the governor and someone figuring out that they made this, this, this courtroom made a mistake. So once I got certified as an adult, I was taken to Fairfax County Jail. Um, but then when they certified my co-defendant, my, my friend, and they brought him to the jail. They had to keep us on keep separate status. And so they moved me to solitary confinement. And so then I was in isolation um, for like the next month and a half until they finally found somewhere to be able to place me inside of the jail. Wait, you were you were on solitary for a month and a half? Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't on punishment because they were just they just threw me in there because they couldn't have me in the same space with my co-defendant. And so I wasn't on punishment. So I could have books. I could use the phone, you know, uh, twice a week. I could go out and take a shower every three days. So it was tough living in that space where I'm like a kid and all I really want to do is just bounce off the walls, right? I'm like doing push-ups in my cell. I'm like looking at scratched up foiled mirror in the, that's t- attached to the, to the cinder block walls, you know, a, a foot and a half above the sink, the metal sink that's attached to the metal toilet inside of this really, really, really cold room with the light that never goes off and is on 24 hours a day. And I'm just literally trying to count the amount of cinder block walls to be able to keep my brain busy. He was grasping on to anything he could to maintain his sanity. It reminds me of when you're a kid on a long road trip counting stop signs on a desolate stretch to nowhere. But Marcus was confined for much longer than several hours. And even the view of dried up farmland would have been better than the prison wall. But this was reality. Marcus was growing up behind bars and his brain, like we talked about earlier, was developing in jail. Not at school, not in the basketball court, not around his family. 
he was surrounded by fellow inmates and guards, spending month upon month in solitary confinement. But Marcus believed he was getting out, that one day he would just drive back home, be at school, be back on the basketball court. It was how he coped, how he survived. Amid fear and uncertainty, hope wound up being that tiny shred of light that kept him carrying on. Marcus didn't know what was going to happen, neither did his mother. But the thought that maybe, maybe one day he'd be a normal kid again is ultimately what saved him. For most people, solitary confinement would break them forever. But Marcus's brain had another plan. I was listening to a, a podcast recently and they were talking about solitary confinement and how it just like narrows your focus. Like the things that weren't interesting before have to become interesting to keep you sane. Did you have to like employ those kinds of coping mechanisms? Yes. Yes. I mean, I don't think I, I would have described it as a coping mechanism. I think it's a, a, a natural thing that happens as a result of, of my brain just targeting certain spaces that because it won't allow for me to be able to go wide any longer. What my, the content that I'm, I'm seeing in, in front of me every day becomes the thing that I build additional thoughts around. So when I think about the cinder block walls, I'm thinking about each one of the grooves inside of each one of the cinder blocks. And I'm comparing the grooves in one piece of cinder block to the grooves in another piece of the cinder block. When I look at the mirror, I'm trying to figure out how what the defining words are that people scratched inside of the mirror. And I'm trying to read the names. And I will spend hours just looking at it and staring at it and trying to see, does this say fresh? Does this say freaky? And over time, I'm making my own assumptions about what this person wanted to write on the side of this mirror. What were they doing when they sat in this cell? Did they have a mattress that was as thin as mine? Like all of those details are forced upon you when you're forced to look at each one of them for hours and hours and hours and hours on it. I mean, if I was, if I was in solitary confinement today, as a, you know, as a 30 plus year old man, like, dude, like I would be going bananas. Like after being able to see beaches and engage with people and have experiences that, you know, I wouldn't have, you know, I didn't have when I was a 15 year old kid. I didn't understand all of the world that I was missing because it was already confined. Um, and, and it allowed me to be able to stay sane, I believe. Staying sane during a month and a half of solitary confinement is no easy feat. Research shows that being confined to a cell can shrink parts of your brain that control memory, spatial orientation, and emotions. So when you think about the psychological toll this would take, it's hardly surprising that people in solitary confinement, although only making up 6 to 8% of the overall prison population, account for roughly 50% of prison suicides. It's an environment designed to break you. But Marcus pushed back. He sought out meaning where there wasn't any, and scratches on the mirror, patterns in the wall, Anything, anything that would pull his mind away from the living conditions that tore away pieces of his humanity. By continuing to practice his footwork or fantasizing about joining a basketball team, Marcus could cling to a life that was once his, or a life that could be his. But he couldn't shield himself from the truth forever. One day, he was suddenly confronted with the harsh reality of his unscapable world. When did this concept of prison become like a permanent fixture that, that this was your new reality it wasn't until i met my friend danny b who was in his mid-50s and i'm like 17 now and i've done like two years 
And Danny B, you know, was real cool with me because, you know, in prison is the only place you can be 17 and have one of your boys be in their mid-50s. And like, y'all were real, real cool. And we were walking around the prison rec yard one day and I had asked him how long he had been there. And he looked at me with a straight face and he was like, oh, yeah, I've been here for 31 years. And when Danny B told me that he had already served 31 years, it literally smacked me like a ton of bricks. And it was like, oh, snap, I'm going to have to serve all eight of these years. I remember like it was yesterday, like literally I can remember how frozen my face felt and how I had to wrestle with this new idea of this reality that I had tried to box myself out of for the last couple of years was now going to be it for the next at least six. And and I had to wrestle with knowing that like, yo, next year, senior year, all of your friends are going to graduate and you'll never be able to experience potentially going to homecoming and being voted into a homecoming king. And your mom will have never witnessed you walk across the stage. And all of these things were going through my brain as I'm become crippled in a space where I could not emote. What do you mean not emote? I couldn't show all of the fear and anxiety and depression and hopelessness that I felt in that singular moment. Right? Like there was nobody to cling to inside of this adult maximum security prison where everybody had 40, 50, 60, 70 years. When my my sale partner had life plus 43, and my other friend down the hall had life plus 21. And here I am, the youngest person on the on the compound, trying to wrestle with knowing that I'm gonna have to spend the next several of my years living amongst all of them. And instead of me saying that I'm here and on the way out. I now have to say, we're all here together. And Marcus, this is your life now. When you have life, like what is there left to lose? There's always the hope, right? The people that know that they're going to be there for the rest of them lives. And maybe even the people that are there, that are sentenced to multiple sentences. And they're reminded like, yo, there may be a governor that comes through and changes these laws and says X. Right, there may be a, a new program that allows us to be able to just be on a on a prison that allows for, you know, family visits that will allow me to get a trailer visit, right, with my wife. Right. They like there's always some level of hope that's living there that prevents you from either hitting the gate, trying to climb over and let somebody shooting your back, or from going insane. Like those are the two, those are the two options. Those are the two alternatives, right? Either hit the gate or go crazy. Marcus was in it. No one cared that he was a kid living side by side with men who'd been in prison longer than he'd been alive. No one cared how many years he had left. These institutionalized prisoners were his peers, his new community, and their experiences began to permeate his mind. Emotions are socially transmissible, especially for an empathetic young person like Marcus. He became affected by this emotional contagion. And with all the negativity seeping into his consciousness and coloring his perception, It's hard to believe that he could make it through. But Marcus is in denial. And while some might dismiss this as an unproductive defense mechanism, it was this denial that shielded him from a torrent of emotions that he wasn't ready to process. That dam soon broke, leaving him to grieve for his old life and the years he'd never get back. The denial had allowed him to keep some amount of hope alive, and this hope was essential. 
But without it, his happiness began to degenerate. I became very, very depressed, super hopeless, right? My, my sale partner would commonly talk about like, yo, the last thing I may see is literally these cinder block walls before I die. And in my mind, I'm like, yo, birds of a feather flock together. Apparently that's what I've been hearing all my life. So if I'm in here with you, maybe this may be my reality as well. When my mom began to sense that, and she saw very, very swiftly, like, yo, this dude is going down a different path. The way that he's communicating is different. The way that he talks about his tomorrows is completely different. I can't allow for this to happen. And my mom is trying to coach me back into the game through these collect calls and, you know, through her visits. Eventually, like, mom, look, you need to just start grieving now. Right. Like start grieving. Let me go. It's, it's different here. So start grieving now, because if, if something happens to me, like it'll be easier for you to let me go later if something were to happen. And then the only reality is you just got to spend five hundred dollars to pay for my body to get it back from the state because I'm still awarded the state until my eight year sentence is over with. And my mom is on the other line listening to her teenage son. And she's like, you have lost your mind if you think that I'm letting you go. Boy, if I... And then she literally was like, i see you this weekend. My mom drives the three and a half hours to come down to visit me. And she's sitting across the table with me. And she's like, listen... Don't you ever call me with that foolishness what you were talking about ever again in your life. Listen, let me tell you something. God has a plan for you. And although you may not be able to see it right now, I know that there's life for you after this prison sentence. In fact, I'm going to make a commitment to you starting today that I'm going to write you a letter or I'm going to send you a picture every single day for the next six years of this prison sentence until you come home just so that you can see there is life after this prison. And my mom is explaining this to me while I'm sitting in the prison visiting room and I'm like, lady. So in your mind, you're thinking that some letters and some Polaroids is going to change any of what I'm going to have to experience when I walk back through them double doors and they tell me to squat and cough and do all of the dehumanizing things that make me feel like I am less than a person every time that this freaking whistle blows on this prison work yard. And my mom is telling me, dude, what you need to understand is that just because you're the one that's in the cell and you're the one wearing the handcuffs, you're not the only one that's in prison. Every morning I wake up and I have to walk past your bedroom and I have to figure out what is it that I could have done differently to prevent my son from being in the position that he's in right now. I have to wrestle with this idea of knowing that while I'm a minister at church and participating in youth events, that people may be looking at me thinking, why are you trying to minister to my 17-year-old son and your 17-year-old son is in prison right now? What you don't realize is that when you go to prison, Marcus, I'm in prison as well. I leave that visiting room I get back to my cell, I'm processing this visit, and my mom, she does exactly what she promised to do. She writes me a letter, and she sends me a picture literally every single solitary day. 
And there's no internet in prison. And so the millions of people that are sitting in these cells that have become forgotten about because their son or their uncle or their daughter or their mother has gone away in two weeks turns into three months and three months turns into five years very, very swiftly. They don't have the commitment that my mom has made. And so now as I'm getting my name called for mail every day and seeing these amazing photos that my mom is sending me of all of the food that she believes that I'm going to eat when I come home or pictures of a pillow top mattress in a department store with a four page letter about how soft the mattress is and that one day I'll sleep on a comfortable bed after I come home from prison was something that my housing unit had never seen before. In fact, all of my other friends began living vicariously through my mom's mail. And all of these men who now became my brothers over the years, these became my best friends. We're the ones who share all the deepest secrets and have this kindred spirit because we're all going through this thing together. We're able to experience this love that my mom is sharing with us. And we're like, oh, snap, dude. When is your mom going to send more pictures of the amusement park? When is your mom going to send more pictures of things? And so commonly, we would experience things like us sitting in the visiting room and people walking in the visiting room and they waving at my mom like, hey, Miss Bullock, when are you going to get your wash and dryer fixed? And my mom looking at them like, what in the world? You? How do you know about my wash and dryer? And I'm like, you sent me a picture of a washing machine and there was a thing. One guy used to work for Maytag and the other guy, he talked about he used to love Kimmel products. It was an argument in day room just go with it they're like oh okay well thank you yeah i'm working on it and like you know these became the conversations and the things that we would look forward to simply because my mom made that commitment and no one has seen that before oh man i'm so grateful for my mom and the blessing that um she was with one of the darkest moments of my life during the darkest time of marcus's life he hit the gate and sunk into a deep depression. One of the core causes of depression is a belief that you're powerless, unable to control the circumstances of your own life. For Marcus, this was true. Locked away between concrete walls, he had no autonomy. From the moment he woke up to the moment he went to sleep, the prison dictated the structure of his days. So while his mom couldn't give him his freedom back, she could help him gain back control of his mental health. Marcus's mom became his lifeline, Each letter and picture was tangible proof that he was loved. As he lay awake on his thin, hard cot, he could visualize himself sinking into the soft, cool mattress from the picture she'd sent. The small connection to the outside world was like a lever on a pressure valve, relieving the suffocating tension of prison life. His mom's unwavering support kept Marcus from sinking too deep. She was the reason he could resurface from the depths that would have otherwise consumed him. So gradually... Marcus stopped mourning his old life and started planning his future. What is it like as your last couple of weeks are rolling around? I mean, it became surreal, right? Like, it was like, oh, snap, I'm going to be going home soon. And while I knew that February the 3rd was the calendar date that we ended up landing on, it was like, on the other side of this month, I'll literally be able to breathe a different kind of air. I'll be able to experience hugs that last longer than 10 seconds. 
I'll be able to be immersed back into a world that wanted to embrace me. I think the thing about especially like the American prison system is like you serve your time and you're released, but like only partially. There's so much stigma. There's so much legislation built around keeping those shackles on, even if you're not in the prison. Tell me about that process of reintegrating into the real world again. So when I came home, I would apply for jobs. I was willing to do anything, but everyone, you know, slammed the door in my face. In fact, it was 41 of the first job applications that told me no before the 42nd one, um, which was at a paint store, asked the same question on the job application. Have you been convicted of a felony? But this time there was a comma behind it that said within the last seven years. Now, after just serving an eight-year prison sentence, I'm like, nah, I haven't been convicted of a felony within the last seven years. Who, me? Of course not. Now, that paint company uh, gave me an opportunity to come in, and while I was making a minimum wage paycheck, it gave me the dignity of work. It restored the humanity for me and my family and gave me value to myself when I was starting to get beat up and thinking that I was going to either violate probation by not being able to find a job or just be not be able to prove to my family how hard I was willing to work once I came home to ensure that I was able to be a contributing member to my family and my community. Marcus was elated. At 23 years old, he was finally free and eager to hit the ground running. But before he could pursue a path he had been dreaming of for those eight long years, he needed to land a job. His opportunity for true freedom, for financial freedom, was on the line, and the odds were against him. In the U.S., the unemployment rate among formerly incarcerated people is over 27%. To put that in perspective, that's higher than the general unemployment rate during the worst days of the Great Depression. While Marcus had prepared himself for his reintegration by getting his GED and taking college courses, in the end, came down to persistence and luck. Landing the job at the paint store gave Marcus stability, validation, and self-worth. While some people might have found mixing paint to be dull and monotonous, the past eight years had taught Marcus to stay engaged and never stop seeking out opportunity. And like this kind of kickstarted your entrepreneurial bug again, right? Because like, you were, you started doing some contracting on the side. Yeah. It was interesting because I saw this amazing opportunity while working at the paint store and being the happy go lucky person at the register that everyone wanted to come work with. And so I was super excited to talk to everybody that walked through those doors. And eventually the comfort and trust that I built as a result of the rapport with the customers that were walking to the paint store would create a level of curiousness for them. And they would ask me how much I charge to paint their houses. Similarly, I would also hear conversations from the contractors and the painters that would walk into the paint store and they would complain about this new pending recession. And I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. You talking about there's no work. You can't find a job. Bruh, there's so many people that come in here and want me to paint their kitchen. And I became the conduit between these customers in the paint store and the contractors who were looking for work. We created a small painting business and I was off to the races painting as many living rooms and porch steps and shutters. And eventually 
entire homes as I possibly could. Almost like your attitude and zest for life just created opportunity, like it like materialized out of thin air. So what year is this around? So it's about 2005, 2006, when we launched a painting company. Are you still at the register selling people paint while you're like making all these oh, phone yeah. calls? Absolutely. What? Oh yeah, I had, this is when, I will never forget, this is when Jabra came out with a brand new earpiece that like, it was the first wireless um, Bluetooth headset. And I was always fascinated by two new technologies because I never got a chance to use any of this stuff because I went to prison. When I went to prison, there was no internet. I came home, there was Google. My mind was blown. And so I'm like, have this job headset on and people are calling and I'm answering calls and I'm mixing paint while I got this headset on and I'm taking notes. And that was like the hustle back and forth and back and forth. I did it for about a year working at the paint store before eventually the painting company, they promoted me to a sales rep because they couldn't understand why my sales were almost 10 times higher than everyone else in that paint store across the circuit. The painting company promoted me to an outside sales rep. And my mom is looking at me like, dude, you went from making, you know, minimum wage to now having an $80,000 sales rep job. And I'm so freaking proud of you. Like, this is amazing watching this happen. And I'm like, holy crap, my whole life changed. And change it did. Marcus went from working a minimum wage job to making 80 grand as a sales rep. He did this by building rapport with customers, by being dependable and consistent. It's kind of weird when you think about it that someone who'd spent years in solitary confinement was able to pull free of the pain that for many would have permanently inhibited their ability to engage with people. In fact, in January 2016, President Obama banned solitary confinement for imprisoned juveniles due to the negative psychological effects like alienation, reduced ability to interact with others. It's serious stuff. So imagine leaving prison with stigma and discrimination already obstructing your path and then realizing the even greater obstacle is your own mind working against you. But Marcus realized he had missed his most formative years. So he had this overwhelming desire to relive what he missed, and it drove him to pursue relationships. Turns out, Marcus had the ability to connect with others in a way few can't, an ability he would soon take beyond the walls of the paint shop. 2009, 2010, the larger contracts come in. After the the painting business continued to take off, it allowed me to be able to live a life of freedom that I had never experienced. It allowed me to be able to take my girlfriend on vacation after vacation after vacation. So when we started to do that, my friends are calling me and they're calling me collecting like, you where? Like, dude, what in the world is in Madrid, Spain? How did you end up in Portugal? You out there living your best life right now and we aren't able to see any of it. We need to figure out a way to get you to take take some pictures and send them to us. And I used to tell them like, yo, dude, like if you, you know, on my Facebook or something, like you would see all of the pictures, right? But the reality of it is, is that I don't even know how to print pictures off my phone. And I don't have the time to sit down and write a letter or go to the post office and buy postage and go to Walmart to go buy envelopes. All of that process is just too much work. I got to try to find a solution and send you pictures directly from my phone you know, these new iPhones, building these, all these different kinds of apps, there had to have been an app to be able to help me connect with my friends that were in jail. When I searched the app store and didn't find one, I Googled how to build a mobile app. 
that took me down a rabbit hole that I wasn't really prepared for. My life was filled with RFQs, ITBs, architectural plans. The last thing in my world I was thinking of was trying to build a freaking mobile app. But I really just thought in my mind that if these other companies like Newsweek and Cars.com, if they can build an app, I mean, how hard could it possibly be? I started to call these development company and I would ask them, how much would it cost for me to build a mobile app for me to send pictures to my friends that are in jail? And they would be on the other end. They would be like, so why would you want to send pictures to people in jail? I would hang up because clearly you aren't the right developer for me and call the next one. And then they would ask me like, well, who are you? And like sending me an email, like what is the UX UI for the design and where are your wireframes? And I'm like, Ux Ui. I don't even know what Ux Ui is. All I want to do is send pictures to my boys in prison. I would continue to go down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out in between kitchen remodels, like how to learn these new terms and trying to figure out how to fill in this knowledge gap that's centered around me wanting to build this technology. Eventually, we land on a developer who wanted to help me build a small team. And we later landed on this idea that later became FlickShop. You weren't trying to build like a big company. You were just trying to build a tool that you could use personally. Yes. I know like there are families that can't afford to accept those collect calls. My mom, she had to determine whether or not she was going to either not talk to her son every day or talk to her son every day and pay these $18, 15 minute collect calls. That was a tough decision for her, I know. And I wanted to figure out how to be able to help support those families that were typically being preyed on by those predatory companies. That was like the thing. It was like, can we keep it cheap and affordable for others like me? And I can just send pitches. After five, four or five years of running this business organically, we reached out and applied for this one business accelerator called Techstars. When Techstars led us into their accelerator, we got gained access to social capital and mentorship along with an initial investment that fueled a growth that we hadn't anticipated. We got another non-dilutive investment from John Legend and his team that he had put together with a partnership with Bank of America. And we were able to leverage that credibility from his investment to be able to get us out of rooms and doors that were typically slamming in front of my face simply because I was another black entrepreneur. But this one had a felony conviction that was building a tool that no one had heard of or seen anything like before. Flickshop began as a personal tool, something Marcus could use to communicate with his friends in prison. Despite not knowing how to build a mobile app, Marcus didn't shy away from a world he knew, well, nothing about. It helped the inmates, but it also managed to improve the lives of their loved ones. Like his mother, some families pay up to $25 for a 15-minute phone call to reach a husband, a mother, or a sibling. These rates don't count additional charges for setting up an account or listening to voicemails. You might think, well, if calls are so expensive, why not just visit in person? But Marcus's mother had to drive three and a half hours to visit him. And inmates are often transferred to other prisons that are nowhere near their families. And with in-person visitations on hold during the pandemic, thousands of people depend on those phone calls now more than ever. Marcus knew how important connection is to those living in isolation. And with FlickShop, he managed to not only keep those connections alive, but improve the lives of inmates long after they emerge from behind prison walls. After the Techstars and John Legend investment, we learned how to build a scalable business that could not only touch me and a few friends that I could connect with over Facebook, 
But now we had some intentionality around figuring out how to connect every person in every cell back to some resource and hopefully their families. And now with an intentional goal and reduce recidivism by half at the end of year 2030. Can you tell me a little bit about how hope and how these these letters reduce recidivism and how you're like combating it and also what that word means for people who don't know? Yeah, I mean, so there are 2.3 million people in prison in the United States and 11 million um, globally. Now, 600,000 of them are coming home in the U.S. every single year. And statistics say that over 70 percent of them recidivate which means that they go back to prison within the first three years of them coming home. The majority of the people that are coming home and that recidivate are going back to prison as a result of technical violations from their probation and parole. That's one of the problems that we want to be able to help resolve, and we're leveraging our advocacy work in order to be able to solve for that. What we want to be able to do with our scalable app is figuring out how to connect families back to their loved ones so that there's a level of love, empathy, and accountability so that we can add to the reasons and the value adds as to why they probably would not recidivate with statistics showing that love and family are one of the main reasons why someone will come home and be a part of their community. And then there's another component that we wanted to be able to try to solve for, and that are all of the other surrounding collateral consequences that will box people out from opportunities when they come home, including the big ones that we all know about, which are the lack of fair chance hiring practices, even the lack of stronger rules around housing and how people like me are prevented from living inside of communities because of our felony conviction. As we see so many conversations around the country talk about health care and what it looks like for people that are sitting in those cells and that are going to be coming home from prison and don't have access to adequate health care coverage, preventing them from being able to receive the, some of the help and assistance that they need to be able to live nice and full, productive lives after their release. We believe that if we're able to connect some of those dots in some of those places and use scalable technologies to be able to do that, then we can solve a lot of these problems simply by doing what we have become commonly aware and see happen in some of our social platforms. We're able to see how we're able to string together ideas and communities that allow us to be able to, one, become more knowledgeable and gain access to programs and social capital that further advance whatever our desires are simply because we can have a few taps on our phone. Those are the people that are sitting in solitary confinement right now that don't realize that there are millions of organizations that want to help ensure that they have a right and humane way to place to be able to live. Or the defense attorneys are trying to figure out how to communicate with their clients effectively, but need an automated process to be able to do it. These are all processes that we know that we can not only help dismantle as we think about what recidivism prevention is going to look like, but so many other companies and organizations will be able to leverage our technology as well to be able to empower their efforts as we all move toward this massive goal of biting this elephant and ensuring that people are not going back to prison when they come home, when they come home. Flickshop enables formerly incarcerated people to get one step closer towards success. In many ways, a felony conviction is like a scarlet letter, preventing people from voting, finding housing, employment, or getting student loans and welfare aid. 
And on top of that, only 12% of companies openly hire those with felony convictions, making it so much more difficult to find a job. Marcus's mission is to make sure that there's some humanity to get people through prison and resources and opportunities waiting for them when they get out. That mission not only combats recidivism, but homelessness, poverty, and discrimination. That legacy doesn't end with Flickshop. I guess looking at what you've done, how do you want people to talk about you and your accomplishments? You know, there are times that I think about the legacy that I want to be able to leave in the world. And one of the things that I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to be able to do now is just to simply be of service. I want to be able to be of service uh, to the community, to my family, to all of the onlookers who can't be what they can't see. And the reality of it is, is that if I do my job well, then I'll also help reshape the dinner table conversations that will create a level of empathy in the world that won't box people out that look like me or that come from some of the neighborhoods that I come from. There's no shortage of brilliance that comes out of these sales or coming out of the neighborhoods that I lived in, right? The majority of the time that there's just a shortage of resources and social capital. In the moments that we open up the doors to some of the same privileges that a lot of us around the country have, and, and it starts with opening up the, our hearts and being empathetic and understanding the cultural differences between all of us, then I think we'll see a massive shift in how we approach social justice and how we definitely approach social entrepreneurship. I want to be able to open up doors for other black founders, specifically other black founders that have felony convictions so that when they walk in their rooms and they walk into the office of some of these venture capitalists or to, to onto the stages of some of the largest world's summits and some of the conferences that are designed to help change or edit or, or reverse some of the legislation that has typically bo- led to boxing people like me out of it. I want them to be able to be comfortable inside of their skin and I want them to be able to grace the stage in some Jordans just like me and be genuine and tell the stories that will allow for a wave of empathy and love to permeate across the country. This is a very interesting and inflecting an inflection point in our country. And I think that the conversations that are being had are pointing toward optimism that I've never seen before. And I'm excited about being just one of those voices inside of a world that wants to see big change. The scope of Marcus's world was once confined between the walls that contained him. A world illuminated only by the small photographs his mom brought him and his own imagination. Upon his release, however, the people who remained inside those walls were not forgotten. He had been just like them, watching his mother pay day after day just so she could hear his voice on the phone. But this was no longer about him. This was about the people he left behind, those in the wrong place at the wrong time, the people who felt the hand of the system, the people who feel like hope left them a long, long time ago. Flickshop opened a new door to hope, connecting loved ones outside with those inside. Marcus wasn't looking just at the short term. He wasn't looking to improve the lives of inmates just one or two times. He sought out lasting change, the potential to defy patterns of recidivism and make a permanent difference. There is no limit to the influence of empathy or the belief in people whose society refuses to seek. And Marcus, unbroken by the long eight years he spent behind prison walls, found himself equipped with the understanding necessary to enact meaningful change. See you next week. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Lett, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.